one of my favorite uh, New Testament characters, the Roman centurion in Luke 7. And this guy is a man's man. He is a seasoned soldier, a veteran. He is a commander of a hundred troops. He is a disciplined professional. I like that. You know, one of uh, the most popular authors these days is Tom Clancy. I've read just about everything he's written. He seems to be especially popular with men. Um, I even like the movies that were made from his books. Usually I don't like a movie if I've read the book first, but I, I like these, you know, Hunt for Red October and Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. Why is he so popular these days? Is it just that um, grown-up little boys like war stories? Probably. But I think there's more to it. I think the reason that his uh, novels are so attractive is that there's this strong sense of professionalism. The soldiers, the heroes in his writings are professionals. And I, I think that appeals to us. Just feels good to see somebody be professional. I like the movie Apollo 13 for the same reason. You know, watching all of those NASA engineers work together as professionals, the astronauts working together, Jim Lovell, you know, the consummate professional. I was talking to Mark Farmer the other day. He was telling me that his father was actually, actually one of the leaders of the uh, telemetry department that was in charge of communicating from Houston to the spaceships on, on the Apollo missions. And he was telling Mark that uh, Jim Lovell must have ice water in his veins. He said it wasn't real obvious in the movie, but there was one point where the capsule was going to crash into the moon. The other two astronauts thought it was over. They were panicking. They were freaking out. The computers were down. And Lovell was sitting there with a piece of paper and a slide rule calculating the, the, the corrections that would have to be made. And he manually turned the capsule so it would avoid collision and get on the right course. You know, here is the consummate professional. That's being a professional. He handles the situation. He doesn't let his emotions run away with him. He, 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 he conducts himself with, with respect and discipline. See, we, most of us, like the concept of a professional because it has... With it, the concept or the feelings of courage and respect and honor and discipline. Those are our, our virtues that, that we rightly admire. Well, this morning I want to look at a professional who has something even more admirable about him. If you haven't turned to Luke chapter 7, I want to first read through this story and then make some comments as we go. Starting with verse 1, he says, uh, When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, the, all this is the stuff we've been studying the last couple of weeks. Jesus teaching on how we can live in a way that, that, that reflects our Father's personality, his character. How we can live in a way that looks like God. And he also taught on the importance of responding to his teaching, not just hearing it, but responding to it. But anyway, when he had finished all these teachings, he went into Capernaum, and this is what happens. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Well, apparently there was a centurion who lived in Capernaum, or at least near Capernaum, 
centurion was a commander of a hundred soldiers, so we can assume that there was a Roman occupation force stationed there near Capernaum, at least a hundred soldiers, and this guy was the commander. This made him a very powerful, influential person in that area. He uh, represented the authority and the power of Rome. Local leaders were allowed to govern. Unless he saw something getting out of hand, then he could step in with his troops and settle things. Also realize that a centurion was not a commissioned officer. In those days, a lot of the officers were political appointments, favors. A lot of the officers were incompetent because they had no experience. They were just given the role, given their command as a political favor. Well, centurions came up through the ranks. They earned their command. They earned it by winning the trust and respect of the other rank-and-file soldiers. They earned it by being someone who the other soldiers could trust, not to lead them into trouble unnecessarily, but to, to command effectively once trouble started. You see, the, the, the Roman army was the most professional army of its day. That's what enabled them to rule the world. Their, their, their discipline and professionalism. And centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. A Roman historian by the name of Polybius writes about centurions. He says, A centurion must not be a seeker after danger, but a man who can command, steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into a fight, but when hard-pressed, he must be ready to hold his ground and die at his post. See, a Roman centurion was a man of courage and of respect, honor, discipline. Now, this uh, particular centurion seems to be uh, pretty unique. For one, we're told that he loved his servant. Uh, his slave, uh, it, was, it was very untypical. Most Romans did not love their slaves. For Romans, a slave was called a living tool. You use it, you throw it away. This man, we're told, highly valued his slave. And I think that misses it. That sounds like he thinks this is too valuable to waste. The, the word really carries with it the idea of honor, respected. See, this man didn't look at a man's status. He looked at his character, his integrity. And he respected his slave. It's possible that this slave had been a, a, a family slave, one that he had grown up with. This could have even been his pedagogue, the, the one who raised him. But he loved his slave and was very concerned for his slave. Well, let's keep reading. It says, When they came to Jesus... They pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. See, this centurion was also unusual for a Roman because he cared for the Jews. He loved the Jewish people. Now, most Romans hated the Jews. The Jews were a lot of trouble. They were constantly rebelling and revolting. They were constantly fighting against Rome. Most conquered people gave up and assimilated into the Hellenistic culture, but not the Jews. They kept their own culture and they kept their own religion. Now, often the Roman government would encourage local religions right alongside the the Roman religion because it kept things calm, kept people complacent. 
In fact, uh, Gibbon writes in The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, he says, The various modes of religion that prevailed in the Roman Empire were all considered by the people to be equally true, by the philosopher equally false, by the magistrate equally useful. See, the Romans encouraged the local religion because it was the opiate of the people, kept everybody under control, kept everybody calm. But that never worked for the Jews. As long as there were Romans on Jewish soil, they resisted. And it seems the more religious they were, the more they resisted. So historically, the Romans hated the Jews. The Jews were were trouble. They were a danger, especially to Roman soldiers who lived under the constant threat of, of terrorism. But this man was different. He loved the Jews. He really did. You can tell when somebody's faking it to, to, to get something from you. But this man sincerely loved God's people. And for me, that's proof of his sincerity, that he was a God-fearer, that, that he had a real relationship with God. Because Scripture teaches clearly that if you love God, you love his people. It's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, it's true today. You can't say, I love God, it's just... Christians, it's just his people that I can't stand. You see, if you love God, you love his people. You don't necessarily like them all. You don't necessarily think they're all uh, great and mature. You recognize their weaknesses and their, their, their failures. But if you love God, the scripture is clear, you love his people. Now I wonder a little bit what Jesus was thinking at this point. Jesus probably knew who this man was. Jesus had taught in the synagogue there in Capernaum that this man had built. I've actually seen the excavated floor of this synagogue in Capernaum when I was studying in Israel. It's kind of an awesome feeling to look where Jesus himself may have have stood. By the way, this uh, synagogue was eventually destroyed by the Romans during one of the Jewish rebellions, either by Titus during the Jewish wars or uh, Hadrian during the uh, Bar Kokhba rebellion. But anyway, Jesus probably knew who this man was. These uh, religious leaders had come to him and said, you know, this man deserves for you to come and help him. I wonder if Jesus wasn't thinking to himself, you know, nobody deserves grace. I mean, he may be generous, but you don't earn my help. I'll, I'll go talk to him about this whole idea of earning God's help. You see, that wasn't the centurion's words. That was the town elder's words. Listen to what the centurion said. Jesus was not far off from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell to one, go, and he goes. And to this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this. He was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him to make sure they caught this. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now the word uh, that's used here, Jesus was amazed, really implies to be impressed, to, to admire. See, Jesus was impressed. Now it takes a lot to impress 
Jesus. But this man's response did. This man was not only a professional, a man of courage and honor, discipline, but he was also a man of impressive faith. And that was the most remarkable thing about him. That's that's what astounded Jesus. Let's take a look at, at this faith. First of all, notice that this faith was combined with humility. This man controlled the Roman troops for the whole area. This man was in charge. He had power. Roman soldiers were known for taking what they wanted. If a Roman soldier came into your shop, took an apple, you smile nicely, say you're welcome, have a nice day. See, the Romans did what they wanted because they had the power. And Jesus was just a Jewish carpenter. This guy could have sent a half a dozen of his troops to bring Jesus. Or he could have sent a summons saying, be here or else. But he doesn't. He doesn't demand anything. He asks. But you see, no arrogance at all. Only humility. And it's a real humility. He's not acting that way because he's weak or he doesn't know how to command. He commands every day. It's a genuine uh, appropriate humility. Realistic humility. That's the word I'm looking for. A humility that recognizes that Jesus is a man of authority. Now, I'm sure this centurion didn't understand all of who Jesus was. Nobody really did it back at that point in, in Jesus' ministry. But he understands enough to call him Lord. Recognize him as his re- true su- superior. It's a simple recognition of fact that this man puts forward. He realizes that Jesus is Lord, the centurion is not. It reminds me of that line from the movie Rudy where the old priest says to Rudy, I've learned two things in my life. One, there is a God. Two, I am not him. You see, there is a God and Jesus is him. Yet how much, how often do we treat him in in a demanding way? You know, this centurion's faith was so different than what is so often marketed as faith these days. Or someone stands up and demands that God do what they think he's obligated to do. You know, claim a promise, quote a Bible verse, and then demand that God do it. As if that was faith. Well, that's not the kind of faith that this centurion was demonstrating. And a little closer to home. You know, how often in those times of fear or frustrations do we demand that God take care of our pain, solve our problems, as if we could bluff or or bully God? Now, don't get me wrong. We want to claim the promises of Scripture, but not as a way to force God, but as a way of honoring God, taking His Word seriously. It honors God to take His Word seriously. H.A. Ironside wrote, It pleases God to, to honor our faith because faith honors Him. Faith makes, or faith takes Him at His word and counts the things that we cannot yet see as though they already were. See, this centurion respected Jesus' word enough to say, You just say the word and it's done. He knew Jesus had that kind of authority, that Jesus' word had that kind of authority, that Jesus didn't need to come Himself 
and do some ritual. Jesus didn't need to send a magic charm or, or even medicine. Jesus could just speak the word and it would be done. This man understood authority and he recognized that Jesus had that kind of authority. See, it is faith that understands that the word of God is powerful and trustworthy. And that can't be emphasized too strongly. See, faith is a recognition. It's a conviction. It's a chosen belief that God's word is powerful and reliable, that we can count on it. Also, don't get me wrong when I talk about us crying out in our frustration. Crying out to God when you are frustrated, when you're afraid, or when you're angry or confused, is faith. To ask God for what we need is faith. It is pure lack of faith when we don't come to Him with our needs. And sometimes when we come to Him, we are afraid, and we are confused, and we are frustrated, and we are angry. Men and women of God have always trusted Him enough to be honest with Him. And when we are angry with Him, we need to come to Him to talk to Him about it. Otherwise, we end up taking it out on on the people around us or on ourselves. You see, it is faith to trust God enough to talk to Him. But that's very different than trying to, to pressure God, to force God by our emotional intimidation or the tantrums that we throw. Back to the centurion's faith. Like I said, it was a humble faith. All true faith is. In fact, that's one of the ways you can tell real faith. It is always accompanied by, it always produces humility in the person with faith. So the one thing that will kill faith quicker than anything is pride, arrogance, self-reliance. That's because what faith is, is a trust in God and His ability and Jesus' sufficiency. Pride and arrogance turn the focus back on ourselves, on our own ability, our own sufficiency. And as soon as that shift takes place, faith in God is gone. It's dead. Faith cannot survive arrogance and pride. Notice also that his faith was grace-oriented, not works-oriented. His uh, the, the elders came and they said, Jesus, do this because he deserves it. That's not at all what the centurion said. He said, I don't deserve for you to even take the time. Anything that you do is sheer grace. I appreciate it, Jesus. See, the the Jews looked at good works as a way of earning God's favor. And they looked at the things that this man did, building a synagogue, helping out the Jewish nation as earning God's favor. But that's not how he looked at it. He, his faith is what produced those works. He saw what he did as a response to a powerful, a great, a loving God. See, that distinction is crucial. We don't do works to win God's favor. That doesn't work. Yet if we have real faith and if we've experienced God's grace, that changes our heart. and It gives us a desire to express that gratitude, to give ourselves and our time and our energy to Him. That faith produces in our lives the good works, things that we give to God, ways that we express our love, our gratitude for His love and attention. That's hard for us as Americans. We are so used to getting 
that, that we take and, and just move on. We may give a, a verbal thanks, but we, if we ever do something kind or generous in response, we think we've done something remarkable, something praiseworthy, rather than recognizing that it was merely a response to, to God's love. And this centurion could very well have said, hey, Jesus, I built that synagogue you've been teaching in. Come on, you owe me here. You've got to come through for me here. Just like we can say, well, you know, didn't I teach that Sunday school class? Didn't I give to missions? Didn't I go to church twice this month? You know, you got to come through for me, God. You know, you owe me. See, that misses it completely. This For this centurion, his works were not a way to earn God's favor. They were the least he could do out of gratitude toward a great and a loving God. And here we see one of those seeming contradictions of spiritual reality. We sing some of that, you know. It is the rich, or it is the poor who are rich. It is the weak who are strong. Here we have a similar thing. If you feel like you are worthy, then you're not. That proves you're not. If you feel like you're not worthy, that proves that you are. You see, it's the, this, the centurion's humility that demonstrates the sincerity of his heart's response to God. And if you're feeling like God owes you, like you've got some chips to call in from God, let that sober you. Let that wake you to a real spiritual danger that you're in. Let that, that, that break you and humble you. Yet if you're sitting there feeling unworthy of God's love and care, let His Spirit comfort you in that, knowing that it is for just such as you that Jesus came. I uh, think we could go on and on looking at the uh, centurion's faith, but I, I, we do need to look at the next story as well. Let me, let me make one more point about the centurion's faith, and then we'll move to the next story. That point is that the centurion's faith was a strong faith, was a disciplined faith. I want to call it a manly faith, but I've seen it in as many, if not more, women than I have men. What I'm talking about is this centurion, with all of his humility, with his all of his lack of demandingness, his real consideration for Jesus and his schedules and his, his agendas... In the midst of a life and death crisis, this servant whom he loved was about to die, we're told. He doesn't panic. He doesn't demand. He doesn't resort to his power and drag Jesus there, force him to do something. He continues to be a man of discipline and of strength. In the midst of that crisis, he demonstrates that discipline. He's a man who knows how to take orders and how to give orders. He's a man who understands authority. He's a man who responds to Jesus in that way. When he asks something of Jesus, he doesn't say, if you can. Jesus can. Now, he doesn't presume that Jesus will, but he doesn't question whether Jesus can. And so he approaches the matter straightforward. He expresses his, his need he asks what he needs to ask for. But he does it without manipulation, without bargaining, without um, uh, being tentative, without going back and forth whether 
He believes Jesus. You, see, you get a real sense of discipline here. A discipline that takes Jesus at his word. That, that, that respects Jesus enough to be honest and straight with him. That doesn't waver. You know, so often we allow our insecurities to invade and distract our confidence. We allow our emotions to take us up and down and sideways. See, part of learning to be a professional is learning how to not allow your emotions to to, uh, cloud your judgment and to impede your execution of your responsibilities. The idea in developing that kind of professionalism, that kind of discipline, is that if you let your emotions, especially fear or weariness or discouragement, distract and, and, and detract from your judgment and your actions, then terrible things can happen. Even fatal things, like crashing into the moon, getting shot by the enemy, having a a patient die. See, that's the whole idea behind professionalism. We are in a spiritual battle here in this life. The the, the battlefield is in our hearts and in our minds. The weapons of the enemy, the primary weapons are fear and doubt and confusion. And he uses these skillfully to immobilize us and to distract us and to turn us against each other and to cause us to grab control of our lives back because we're afraid. We start thinking, you know, what if I really trust God? Is he going to come through for me? What if I trust Jesus with with my job? Am I going to lose it? What if I trust him with my marriage? Is that going to kill me? Is he even there? Is he listening? We get tired. We get weary. We say, I can't take it anymore. In the midst of these spiritual attacks, we need discipline. To be able to say, God, I trust you. I know you can do what you said. I know you can do what I ask. I don't know if you will, but I know you can. I'm not going to panic, start demanding, start trying to manipulate. I'm going to be straight with you, God, and I need you. You see, in the midst of these crises, sometimes it's discipline. It's sheer holding on to the truth that keeps us from being destroyed. In the midst of crisis, sometimes what faith looks like is you standing there saying through your tears... God, I'm hurting. I'm confused. I'm afraid. I'm in need. But I trust you. Say but the word, and it will be done. In the the Catholic Mass, I don't know if they still do this, they used to ring a bell, and everyone would strike their breast and say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Say but the word. And my soul shall be healed. I'm convinced that the faith that was so refreshing to Jesus, the faith that Jesus admired, the faith that really caught Jesus' notice, was the faith that allowed this centurion to rise above his fear for this servant he loved, to believe Jesus. See, Disciplined faith is a delight to our Lord. Now, uh, let me set up this next story, because I think we really need it from here. It it, uh, helps us balance some things. See, in the story of the centurion, 
Jesus does a great miracle, the one we just looked at. He does a long-distance healing in response to this centurion's disciplined faith. But I've sometimes heard this passage used to teach that if you want miracles in your life, then you've got to have this kind of faith. And conversely, if you don't see miracles in your life, it must be because your faith is not strong enough. Well, I think our next story meets that head on. Because it is not faith that does miracles. Jesus does miracles. The second way I think this story uh, brings balance to what I've been saying has to do with this whole idea of disciplined faith. You know, I've been arguing that, that disciplined faith delights our Lord. And that to some degree, disciplined faith is the ability to rise above our emotion, to not be uh, neutralized by emotion. And I'm convinced that's true. But unfortunately, that can and often is taken to imply that somehow emotions are the problem. Emotions are the enemy. That what really counts is discipline. And the way you establish discipline is you crush all emotion. You know, sadly, that uh, is uh, somewhat of an appealing philosophy to many Christian men. The idea of uh, of a, a... disciplined, emotionless, militarily run home or church sounds very attractive to some. I, you know, I think of the um, Von Trapp family in Sound of Music where the father blows his whistle and the kids all light up, you know, in a straight line, chin up, uh, looking straight ahead. And I think, yeah, that'd be cool. I blow my whistle, my kids light up. <laughs> yeah, good chance of that happening. But that sounds, unfortunately, very attractive to some of us. (laughs) And some of you were actually raised in homes where that was the atmosphere, that was the ideal. And so God feels to you like kind of a tough drill sergeant who's trying to toughen you up, who tells you life is tough, get on with it. Now the idea of disciplined faith can sound so cold and heartless. But it isn't. For one, this centurion is not cold and heartless. He loves his servant. He loves God's people. There's nothing cold and heartless about him. Cold and heartless discipline is a sign of insecurity, not true authority. Take a look at this next story. It says, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out on the way to be buried. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the coffin. Coffin is really the wrong word because they didn't use coffins in those days. It was just kind of a a wicker buyer, a, a, a stretcher, open stretcher that they use to take him to the grave and bury them without a coffin. Anyway, he touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, the word he uses means the man was probably in his early 20s. Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up, began to talk. Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea. Now let's talk a little about this story. Faith 
is important. That is a clear message of Scripture. Yet here Jesus does a miracle without anyone expressing any faith. No one even knew what he was up to. So nobody had a chance to believe or not believe. He just goes up and he raises this young man back to life. See, this was not an issue of faith. See, ultimately, disciplined faith is a delight to our Lord. But what ultimately matters, what it ultimately comes down to is not our faith or lack of faith. The ultimate issue is Jesus and His character, His compassion, His love, His thoughtfulness of us. You see, because of God's loving character, He is doing for us all the time. Every day, the majority of our needs, He meets without us even noticing, without us ever even asking. Because that's His loving, giving character. In our strange way of thinking, we begin to look at faith as if it was something in itself, a virtue in itself. But you see, faith is only as good as its object, what you have faith in. You can have all the faith you want that you can float in midair, but if you step off the ladder, you fall to the ground. You can have all the faith in the world, but if what you believe is a lie, it won't do you any good. What matters is the object of your faith. And the only ultimately trustworthy object for faith is Jesus himself. Now in this story, Jesus walking along, he sees this funeral procession and it broke his heart. This dead man was the only son of a widow. Jesus understood the situation. His mother was a widow. He knew that in that society, in that time, a woman without a husband or an adult son to protect her legally, to provide for her financially, was destitute, was in a hopeless situation. Jesus saw her grief. He understood her situation. We're told that his heart went out to her. I think that's way too weak. The words used here are the strongest possible words for, for compassion. For, for feeling intensely, for loving deeply, for caring completely. There is nothing cold or heartless about Jesus' response to this woman. He felt intense emotion. Care for her. What we see here is Jesus manifesting God's heart. Now, in, in those days, the, the, the prevailing view of God was the Stoic view. That had uh, pretty much permeated all of society, even the religious leaders. Everyone had uh, a variation of, of this view. And the Stoic view of God was that God was completely incapable of emotion. The logic went like this. If God can feel emotion, then he can be hurt. And if a person can hurt God, that gives him power over God. And if that person has power over God, then God is, at least for that moment, inferior to that person. And God can't be inferior to anyone Therefore, God cannot feel emotion. Now, that seems like good logic, which is not true. But we, in our day, seem to adopt a very similar logic. We somehow view God as this cold, impersonal, heartless. You know, that, that, that drill sergeant view of God 
tough and toughening us up. That's very different than the, the Jesus or the, the God that Jesus shows us that He manifests. See, the problem is we have trouble picturing absolute authority and power combined with profound compassion. Because in our world, in our experience, if somebody's got power, they're usually devoid of compassion. And it's the ones who have no power who have the compassion. We rarely see the two combined. But in Jesus, they combine. Because in the Father, they combine. The reality is, as Shelley wrote, in every pain that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. See, the reality is that God does feel. The reality is that our pain breaks his heart. That he has not insulated himself from us. The mind-boggler is that he's chosen to walk through life with us, through the pain, really honestly sharing life with us. Now in uh, our story, Jesus brings this young man back to life, gives him back to his mother. I can't imagine the joy she must have felt. You know, he, all of the, the horror of losing her boy, all of the terror of, of what her future looked like, all reversed just in an instant. You know, what power, what love the Lord expressed. But how come Jesus did this for her? And not for all of the other mothers throughout Israel who had lost a a son. And how come Jesus does this for her? And not for all the other mothers in our congregation who've lost a son or a daughter or a mate. You know, these questions kind of logically follow when when you think of Jesus' love. Does he love her more? Was she just lucky in the right place at the right time? Let me offer a couple of answers to that. A short-range answer and a long-range answer. I don't pretend that these are complete answers, but they're the beginnings of answers. First, the short-range. Jesus was doing miracles in Palestine in the first century for specific reasons. Now, he was responding to people he came face-to-face with. He was responding with compassion to their need. He genuinely cared about them individually, personally. So these were true expressions of his love and his compassion. But he was also doing something else. He was also pursuing a larger strategy and a larger mission. He chose who and where and when in order to reveal himself, to to help people come to an understanding of who he was and the authority and the power that he had. Jesus selectively healed in order to reveal himself as the God who heals, the God who has all authority. And in this particular instance, he is demonstrating, he is showing people, you and I, that he has power over death. This young man was not just Unconscious, He was dead. And yet Jesus, simply with just his word, he speaks and the spirit and the soul return to the body and that boy was alive. Jesus has power over death. Only God has that kind of power. 
the people were right when, when, when they concluded, you know, God has come to help his people. So the short-term answer of why Jesus heals some and not others is not that his love is any different. His love stays the same. His character stays the same. But Jesus is doing more. There, there, there are, are more reasons involved. And those reasons may change from situation to situation where he heals one and not another. Now the long-range answer for why Jesus doesn't just heal every mother's child? Well, the long-range answer is that he will. The story's not over. We're still in the middle. That one day, Jesus will. You see, our, our story here in, in Luke is a demonstration that Jesus can defeat death. He can take back from death what death has taken from us. He has that power and one day he will use it. That is our absolutely confident hope. We know it because he's done it. In 1 Thessalonians, he tells us, he gives us his word that we will be reunited with those we love in Christ. So he's told us it would happen and he showed us he has the power and the authority to do it. And this instance strengthens our faith. It helps us to believe that he will do that because he has done it and he can do what he says. But for now, he has not finally judged, put death away. It's still among us. And the reason it's still among us is because sin is still among us. And to have a world in which there is sin but there's no death to put an end to it would be to create an endlessly miserable world. But we have his clear word that one day the final enemy will be put away. Death will be judged and put away. We know it to be true. And on that day we will be reunited with those that we love in Christ who have gone before. This last weekend I did a funeral for an elderly brother in Christ. He's a hundred years old. What a celebration that was. I'm sure there was grief Missing him, not having him there. There's that pain of separation. There were even tears. But the celebration was far overshadowing all of that grief. Because there was an absolute confidence of where he was. He was enjoying his Savior's face. And there was an absolute confidence that those of us who are in Christ will see him again. When all that we have uh, studied today is boiled down, it comes to this. Faith is important. Disciplined faith is a delight to our Lord. But what matters is that that faith is in Him and His character. See, His love, His authority, His power, His goodness, His compassion show us that that faith is warranted. When we see Him as He is, Faith becomes a sure thing. Let's pray.